Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello there, and welcome back again to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I am here again with Yusi uh, Roinen, and can you hear I'm getting the hang of saying this? Because we say this so much now, so I think we might need to uh, change the intro, but that's beside the point. So what's up? So after 40 or so episodes, we're getting the hang of it. All good here, a flight simulator from Microsoft is finally here. And that is the probably the most important news that I got during my summer holiday that it's coming you can pre-download it so i already had the i think it's called the xbox game pass or is it a pc xbox game pass thing so you pay a monthly subscription i think it's one dollar i'm not entirely sure and it allows you to sort of like netflix style it allows you to download and play the games and once you stop paying for the subscription you lose access to the games and I went in during my holiday and downloaded the game and tried to run it, but it was locked. So on the first time you try to run it, it says, hold on, it's not available yet, even though you have it. So two days ago, it was finally released and made available. I ran it on, on my new workstation, which is not optimized for games, but it's fast. And it crashed a few times. I finally got through on the first day and it gave me a 91 gigabyte download before I got to the game. And I, I thought, okay, this will take three minutes because I, I think I have a fast connection at home. It took about three hours and it was only using a single thread. So mostly my PC was idling and not doing anything. Finally, I got it running uh, and you go in the game and, and you get the smallest plane initially. And I said my departure airport should be my home base, Helsinki. The destination should be Amsterdam. That's what popped into my mind. And uh, I couldn't get the plane to take off because it was in full simulation mode and you have to go through everything and talk with the air traffic control. And I was like, I don't have time for this. I just want to fly. <laughs> I just want to get up in the air. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to see my home city. That's all I care about for now. And I set all the in-game assistance to full. So it gives you this small window and says, are you sure? Yes, I am. So you just click next and it automatically puts the plane in, in the air. So I circled around Helsinki a couple of times, times. Then somebody pinged me on Teams. I shut down the game, and I haven't played it since. Right. Um, so, but but I, I saw some screenshots on Twitter, people sharing that they were trying it out, and I think you also did that. And it amazes me for, for just, just a video game. I mean, if it's 100 gigabyte, that's a lot of data. Um, but the quality of the images were actually pretty good. So it's not just like a 3D rendition that kind of looks something like a 3d landscape but it, it actually looks pretty good right yeah it it looks amazing uh so it's it's pulling down bing maps data real time there's right. an option when you start the game would you like to get real-time data if you have a fast fast connectivity or would you rather that we use whatever we have but it might look blocky so helsinki obviously if you go to downtown helsinki it's not uh in in super detail but you can sort of make that, okay, this is the city that I know. So, so you can it looks fly over your own house and you might be able to spot it. Yes, and if I'm at home or not. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's working? the guy. I'm, I'm going to use the virtual airplane 
in the cloud to do a drive-by to see if you're actually working. That's my exactly. Exactly. So my PC, I've got one of the AMD CPUs now, plenty of RAM and all of that. But my GPU is like three years old. So in 4K, I was still capable of setting the details to high. I'm not sure if there's like a five more notches I could put in there. And it was perfectly playable. But with a keyboard and a mouse, it's not fun. It's like, yeah, this is not, not really flying. This is just it's trying to It's not how fly. you fl fly an actual airplane, or, or maybe no, it is. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, me neither. So that's what's up for me. I still need to spend some more time with the game, though. Uh, how about for you? Everything good? Everything is very good. I have not been playing the flight simulator thing because I don't have that many gigabytes on my hard drive. So I would never be able to pull it down. Uh, what I did was I spent some time with log analytics again. And what I wanted to do is um, I'm, I'm operating and maintaining and monitoring a lot of cloud systems in, and production workloads. So if something happens, I want to be notified, but I don't want to watch my email. I don't want to watch Teams. When I am not working, I spend all my time with my family at all times, um, if they're awake, obviously. And I do not want to have interruptions to that unless it is absolutely important. So having my email in sync doesn't help. Having my Teams available with notifications doesn't help. But how then will I get alerts from the cloud, right? Uh, especially the custom ones. So what I did was I, I built my own integration with Log Analytics to pull, pull out the critical events that I know I need to look out for and when something happens, that's sending a notification to my smartwatch, which is an, an Android-based uh, watch. So I sideloaded an, an app, my own app, onto my watch, and that is using uh, the cloud to pull down notifications, or I'm pushing from the cloud to my watch notifications when something critical happens with redacted data. So if I put my watch somewhere or someone sees what's on the watch, it's just going to say that, monitor one or monitor seven or whatever had a critical alert or multiple alerts, go take a look. So just a, a super early kind of signaling warning system if I really need to take something seriously. And this pretty much never goes off, but when it does, I know this is not a fire drill. This is the real deal. I need to jump in and, and see what's up. So, so, so that's what I did. So helping myself stay uh, keep my productivity, if you will, when I'm working. And when I'm not working, I don't actually have to monitor everything. I will get proactive notifications. That makes perfect sense. So that's like the virtual red phone they had in the movies back in the day with the presidents, like the direct line to this and this person. So now you have that sort of functionality on, on your watch. Yep, yep. So, and I, since it's an Android app, I, I built it in, in Xamarin in, in a way that I can also load it onto my... Android phone, should I want to do that? But in the end, it's everything is maintained and operated and have self-healing and stuff like that. So it is really, really critical things that should happen if, if things go down. But yeah, so that was, that was what I spent time on when the family was sleeping last night and that seems to work. So now I'm in a happy place. Excellent. So on today's episode is news about Azure in August 2020. And this is part two. So previously, a few weeks back, we did part one. And the, um, on that part one, we focused more on the recent security-related updates. And now we go through everything else, which is less security-focused. Uh, uh, so let's just start 
picking this up because there's plenty of new news and announcements for Azure. The first one is general availability of app service support for .NET Framework 4.8. Uh, I can't say that I've, I've sort of expected or needed this, perhaps because I'm more on .NET Core nowadays, but I would imagine, especially for enterprise use, this would be something people have been waiting for. Yeah, and I've, uh, I, I really like this update because some of the, the customers I've talked to and, and the people I talk to, they are not on .NET Core, they're still on the full .NET framework. And even if they don't need new features of the .NET framework, uh, the latest update now with .NET Framework 4.8 comes with uh, security fixes because there are known malicious JSON attacks and stuff you can do in .NET uh, with .NET Framework 4.8. Some of those are mitigated or the, the known vectors are mitigated. And of course, the, the uh, normal bug fixes that come with every release, um, improvements in the runtime and stuff like that. Um, so I, I really like that. And if, if you are running on app services and you want to upgrade your .NET Framework version to 4.8, in the show notes uh, of this episode, you can find a .NET migration guide link from Microsoft as well. One of the things that uh, I remember from my not too distant past when I was doing full-time consulting with customers was that they would have different custom implementations running in Azure or in on-prem. And when you had a look, one of those would be running .NET Framework 3.5 or 2.0, because that was the latest version when the implementation was done. And, and it often seems that nobody gets paid to go through this sort of legacy or, or already in production, we're just using it, but we're not actively uh, creating anything new with it. So nobody gets paid to go through those and, and spend a lot of time upgrading those to newer frameworks. So this is probably a larger problem as opposed to running something like the .NET Framework 4.7 as opposed to 4.8. So the next one, uh, general availability of the Azure Cloud Shell Tools image uh, is now open sourced. So the Azure Cloud Shell, we did discuss that previously on part one of the new announcements, and that was in relation to the VNet support. But now the image where the Azure Cloud Shell spins up from is open sourced. Have you tried this one, picking up the, the sources and, and going through those yet? I haven't picked up the sources, but what I like about this announcement is Microsoft proactively goes out and they say, hey guys, we open sourced it, we need your help. Um, or if you want to help, you can do that. So now you can actually create issues if you have issues with it, and this will be then escalated. And you can also create pull requests. So if you see that there's a feature missing or functionality that you would like to add, you can actually fork the repo, build this yourself and test it out. And then you can submit a PR for the team to review. And this can go into the actual Azure Cloud Shell. So if you want to contribute in, in making cool things happen in the Azure Cloud Shell, you can do that now from this GitHub repo. So I, I really like that. It's, uh, yeah, it's this uh, browser-based uh, authenticated shell experience now coming with an open source attitude, opening up for anyone to contribute and submit issues. And I, I like this, again, showing the openness and transparency of how Microsoft wants to work and getting more momentum in the, in the open source world. So I'm, I'm happy about this. 
Alrighty, I'll need to take that for a spin myself as well. Uh, so I want to pick this super tiny small update next because I think this, especially for you, Toby, this is a super satisfying update. For me, I didn't even see this happened. So line numbers in log analytics query editor is now generally available. How do you feel about this? This is the biggest announcement of the year. So line numbers when you write KQL queries in the browser. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, a, it's an extremely small update, uh, but for me, this is actually very satisfying. So this is in GA as well, so you should have it now in your tenant, uh, and if not, it's still rolling out. And you can toggle it off if you don't like it, but for me, sometimes I have a two or three line query, then obviously it doesn't matter, but sometimes I have a 40 line query, and then it does matter, especially if I'm on a call with someone and they're sharing their screen and they have 50 lines and they say, well, if you see in the middle of this statement somewhere, but they're not pointing with the cursor, you can just say, go to line 27 and change this thing and that's it. So it's, I mean, it, it is extremely helpful if you do things like that and pair programming and, and pair troubleshooting, if you will. Um, so it's a very small update, but again, extremely satisfying. I am now taking, taken back in my memories to about 2011. I was helping out the local customer, but they had outsourced all of their server maintenance to a company in Cape Town. And it happens to be in the, in the same time zone as, as Helsinki, Finland is. So the only way to get anything done was to call by phone to Cape Town and they would share their screen, I think over VNC, which was really, really slow. And then you would instruct on the phone that could you please click on this? Could you please open this file and, and edit line 57, add a dot in there. And once you do that and you do not have line numbers, it's quite painful. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so one of the other updates that I like uh, or semi-like, it's not one of the more important updates to me, but it's in incredibly important if you have Azure Functions running with PowerShell, uh, because PowerShell 6 is coming uh, onto its end of life. So that will be sunset at some point, and then PowerShell 7 is the way to go. Um, so this enable um, developing and deploying Azure Functions for production scenarios using the latest version of PowerShell then, which is PowerShell 7 for your Azure functions. So there's also a, a guide or, or a what's new for PowerShell 7 link that I will put in the show notes so we can take a look at that. So again, if you're running Azure functions and you, you make use of PowerShell, take a look at that. And if you're on PowerShell 6, it makes sense to look at how to move to PowerShell 7 because PowerShell 6 will stop working or will near its end of life soon. Alrighty. Um, the next one that I'll pick is uh, something I know perhaps too little about is the uh, Azure Kubernetes Service node image upgrade. And this all, always reminds me of that one tweet somebody sent. Uh, would you like it now or should we use Kubernetes? <laughs> so, so if I understand this correctly, uh, if I run AKS, and I have a bunch of nodes in there, and those nodes run images that then run whatever I need. This uh, update, which is now in GA, uh, allows me to target the upgrade on a set of nodes in a given node pool. 
Yeah. So that's the, in, in contrast to how it used to work. And when I had all my AKS clusters up and running and, and had to maintain them, whenever I made an upgrade or, or wanted to do a container runtime or an OS uh, update, I had to kind of do a full Kubernetes upgrade, right? And that's kind of sucks. Um, so what we do now or what we can do now, which is, as you said, in, in GA, uh, we can target this upgrade on agent nodes for a given node pool, which you mentioned. And that means that the node pool pulls the latest available node updates and patches, but without a full cluster upgrade. So you can target your upgrades and you don't have to kind of upgrade your entire cluster. You can say, well, this node pool should be upgraded with this and this, and then the node pool will uh, pull that latest available node update and, and patch. And you don't have to do this kind of full AKS upgrade. So um, I like it from that perspective that if you're maintaining and operating and maybe more on the ops side of the DevOps, then this might fall on your plate. And I think at least that the more granular you can make updates, the easier it is to make that happen as well, uh, because the, the less impact it will have on the overall system. So it's a great update. Um, All righty. Uh, there's another uh, Kubernetes update as well. So you can now access Kubernetes resources straight from Azure portal. Uh, so the resources you have in Kubernetes can now be viewable in Azure portal. Oh yeah, and I like this. AKS is flying and Microsoft is investing incredible amounts of resources uh, and budgets uh, for their teams to uh, kind of enhance everything around AKS and Kubernetes. And uh, with this update, there is a resource viewer. Uh, and I think this is still in preview. So the resource viewer in, in the Azure portal you can view your AKS cluster, you get a simplified view, and you don't need to switch context with uh, the Kube control as much. So if you use command line and you wanna manage a different cluster or something like that, you have to use uh, the kubectl command and then you have to switch and then you have to set another context and whatever. And now you can view deployments, pods, replica sets, etc., directly from the Azure portal. So you don't have to do it from the command line. You could also in the past do it from, if, if you use a command line and you say kubectl proxy, I want to proxy into this and then you can get a local browser uh, with a dashboard, a Kubernetes dashboard with your uh, deployments and replica sets and all this. So you could use a browser in the past, but then you still had to make that connection with the command line. Now you can get a, a view of these resources directly from the Azure portal and I really like it. So if you, if you want to check it out, it's rolling out as a preview and I think you have it already in your portals. So if you go to uh, your Kubernetes service uh, in your Azure portal, you will see something called Kubernetes resources as a headline in the menu. And under there you have namespaces, workloads, services, and ingresses. And all of these are in preview. And from there you can kind of drill down into the resources. You can see what kind of deployments you have and what namespaces you have and what workloads and yeah, what, whatever you have in, in the cluster you can now visualize in here. So I, I really like this update as well. Sounds, sounds like it's, it's helping to, to better understand what you have running and, and to, to get this sort of 360 view on what do we have in Kubernetes as resources. Yeah, I mean, all the shortcuts to visualizing something, at least for me, that helps a lot. Um, and, and then of course it, it ties into to this, I've developed and built and architected a lot of cloud solutions, distributed cloud solutions and monolith uh, as well. But today I also do a lot of operations and maintain and maintenance about solutions that I may not have built. 
So I build them and I maintain them, but then I also operate things that I didn't build. So in order to understand what actually flies in there, this helps me incredibly much. So I can just go to the portal and see, all right, the code just did something and there's now five deployments and there's now this and this. I can see it from there without just having to monitor everything in the command line. So that's also pretty cool. All righty. Um, and then there's two perhaps smaller updates, both in preview. One is NFS 3.0 support in blob storage. And the other one is auditing logs of Azure Monitor log queries. So you actually see who's actually running those queries in Azure Monitor. And I yeah. think the latter one is, is probably something all admins should, should sort of integrate in their thinking. And the former one, the blog storage support for NFS3, very relevant, especially if, if you're moving large files or you have really read-heavy access workloads to your storages. Yeah, and, and I like the, the blob update there with the um, NFS or network file system, um, which if you say that again, brings you back in time uh, <laughs> a little bit too long, perhaps. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, you, can, you can, from a VM, you can just mount a container, a, a blob container and work with the files directly. So that's, that's pretty nice and it's very quick as well with support for MS, NFS3. Um, this update you mentioned about audit logs for Azure Monitor log queries is something that I'm in, in, interested in a lot because one of my responsibilities is to uh, cater for all security events for how our security posture is. And that means both code security and cloud security and infrastructure and perimeter security and things like that. What I like about this is now you can um, run a query to see who ran a query. So kind of query inception, if you will. Uh, but the benefit of that is I can tie this into whatever I want. For example, if I want to tie it into Azure Sentinel, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I want to tie it into um, uh, getting log analytics reports when someone runs uh, a query. So I get this kind of audit log to see who ran a query, when was it run, what tool was used to run the query? Because you can run um, a log analytics query from the REST API, from PowerShell, from the CLI, um, from the Azure browser uh, or the Azure portal, uh, from a custom built tool and so on. Uh, you can see what was the query text. So what do they actually look for? Uh, you also get performance stats for these queries because that's important. Sometimes when you run a query, it can take a long time depending on how you formulate it or if you put limits on the query or not. So that's also helpful. Um, and you enable this by going to uh, diagnostics and you can opt in from there for auditing. And, and it's like diagnostics uh, based telemetry, I suppose, where you can send it to an Azure storage blob or an Azure event hub or Azure monitor logs. Um, I like Azure monitor logs, obviously, because I spend a lot of time in there, but also the Azure event hub is interesting because then you can choose what to do with this. So if you, have everything in Azure Monitor, but specifically audit logs, you might want to shoot them over to a different system or shoot them over with notifications to, um, to a, I don't know, a logic app or something else. You want to do something with it, actionable um, Intel, if you will. Then using a an Azure Event Hub, you can wire this event up to whatever you want, to an Azure function, to a lo um, logic app, to a webhook, if you will, to a Teams notification, to a Slack notification if you're on that side. So you can do a lot of things. And I really, really like this uh, because a lot of the times I've, I've done um, queries and I've figured out 
someone is trying to run expensive queries and this is impacting quite a lot of things. And then I can figure out what kind of queries is being run and why. And then we can kind of optimize that if it comes from an application. And if it comes from a person or a co-administrator or someone with contributor read permission to specific resources, including then log analytics, you can also see who is looking for what type of information. So it's a, it's a great way for investigating things and events. Alrighty. Um, and then the next one is the capability to deploy to Azure container instances with Docker desktop. So I, I, I feel there are so many moving parts now with all things Docker containers, both on your dev environment as well as in Azure. And this seems to give me the capability to have Docker desktop running locally where I do my development. And when I create my containers, test everything works, I can then deploy directly by using Docker Desktop to Azure Container Instance as a new container instance. Wow, I have totally missed this update and now I am viewing the website as we talk and I'm like, can we stop this show so I can go and do this because this looks <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, that, that's actually a great update and I think this might help with the entire um, dev lifecycle, especially if you're ramping uh, the team up because my experience that I have in, in recent years is we kind of embraced containers and it was me and one of my colleagues who knew containers or started to dabble with containers. We, when I started with it many years ago now, I had no idea. It's like, it's a, what do you mean container? What is it? It's like a blob container or what? Um, but as I got, got into that, took a couple of weeks to get my head around the thinking with a container. But that was only like the concept. And then I needed to figure out where do I run the container? How do I do that? And at that point, I used Docker Hub and the Docker Swarm cloud. And then the, um, yeah, Docker had their cloud. And then Azure came with their previews of running containers and AKS or um, the Kubernetes services, uh, which were called something else before. You know, there were so many options, but I only wanted to try to run my .NET code in this container. Can I just run the container in the cloud? I don't care about orchestration. I don't care about all the things around it. I just, I have a console app. It says, hello world. I just want it in a container so I can see that that's working. But that was difficult to do many years ago because it was so new, very few points of documentation around the globe, extremely difficult to, to um, kind of get your head around that. But once you did, it was, you know, easy peasy, as I would say today. But this, I think, is an incredibly important thing for people who also start out um, if you might be a developer for 20 years right which which i was at the point when i started with containers i'm like what the heck is this so if your team is embracing this now i think this helps because then you can do everything locally you get things into your local container and then how do you get that to the cloud well you do it with docker desktop bam it's in an azure container instance running in azure and you can see that working full cycle when you have that working and you know that it also works in the cloud, well, then you can take all the extra steps on deployment and integrating into CI pipelines and whatever you want, or um, as, as some people might do, right-click publish, but please don't. Um, I, I, important update. I, I missed it. I'm glad you mentioned it. So after this call, I will spend four hours looking at this. <laughs> I am happy for you already. Uh, this is also something that I need to try out. I don't currently have Docker Desktop installed because, yes, I, I rebuilt the whole machine. Uh, so I need to install Docker Desktop first, and then I have to try this as well. Where are your priorities, man? 
I'm not sure. I did install <laughs> Visual Studio 2019 and VS Code first, then Flight Simulator, of course, and that, that took the better half of the day. So Can you now, run Flight Simulator inside of a container? That would be interesting, though. <laughs> I, I need to try New this. experiment. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we have two more announcements left, and let's get the other one over with, and then we can spend a bit longer on the last one, because I think that's, that's the most, most significant updates of the whole episode. So the first one, which I think is important, but not as important as the last one, uh, is a declarative deployment in Azure is simplified, meaning uh, creating and managing and deploying using ARM templates is simplified. And right. this, yep. this, this is partially in tooling in, in VS Code. So, so there's additional capabilities. This is definitely a big thing, I would say. And I'm a bit torn at times on when I should use ARM templates. Then we have people calling that, yeah, you just need to go with Terraform. Then we have Azure CLI, just do a simple script with this, or use an API to poke and fiddle with whatever you're planning on deploying. So I think this, this is a great idea that they will simplify all deployment uh, approaches where you choose to use an ARM template. Yeah, and you know, this touches a great point, what you just mentioned, and it might also make sense, and I'm trying to make a mental note here because I will forget this, but we should do an episode about declarative deployments in Azure and different approaches because there yeah. is a lot of ways, and you also have infrastructure as code, um, you know, and how does that differ? What, what is a declarative deployment versus a code approach and things like that? Besides the point right now and besides this update, but I think as a mental note and for the audience, you can remind us if you want to hear about this, then please reach out. Um, what I like about this update is this what if pre-deployment impact analysis thing that they have. So you can, you can say, I want to run this deployment with a what if statement, and then it will try to determine what's going to happen and what impact it will have when you run it. So that's also a pretty cool thing. But there's a lot more details to, to this update in the show notes as well. So you can click that link and you will see all of the things we just talked about. The, the what if um, impact analysis is something that we've all used in PowerShell for ages now. And, and that's saved my, my ass on the line a couple of times already. So I, I'm happy to see this and the other uh, improvements in there. And as you said, we need to do one episode definitely on infrastructure as code and also to dive a bit deeper into ARM and ARM templates. So sometimes um, I kind of wish that there was a flag called, what if I didn't? Yeah. Because <laughs> when you did something and it went wrong, it's like, what would have happened if I didn't do that? And, <laughs> and the last one, uh, Cosmos DB serverless is now in preview. Yes. And this is something I've waited for about two years now. Ever since, I think it was about two and a half years since we got Cosmos DB. And the, the history or the background on this is that when you provision Cosmos DB, you have to define how many request units per second you're, you're uh, estimating to use. So, so you set that target and based on that billable approach to Cosmos DB works. And mm -hmm. with a couple of customers, we've had challenges with this. So we set it to... 400 request units per second and we check the pricing calculator it says something like 20 euro yes we're fine with this and then we have a developer who goes way beyond this without really noticing at all just saying well it's amazingly fast 
Yes, because you're repeating 4,000 request units per second. And at the end of the month, we get an extra bill of 2,000 euro. Yeah. So now with serverless, and I did check the prices because this was announced uh, yesterday evening and I was spending time with the family as well. But in the morning when I got my coffee, I went to see on Azure Calculator, it's already there. So when you do the, the analysis uh, in the Azure Calculator, you set the model to serverless and then you specify how many million request units you're planning to consume. And the minimum is 1 million. So I set it to 1 million in West Europe for me. And the price comes up to 26 cents. So in US dollars, I think this is about 30 cents. And then I pay on top of that for storage. One gigabyte of storage is 21 cents. So in US dollars, I think about 25, 26 cents. Total 47 cents. So 0.5 euro for one month of use with 1 million request units and 1 gig of storage. Yeah, and that's pretty good. And and I, I read on the on their website the other day, I, I took a look in the use cases for using serverless with Cosmos DB is when you have light traffic or moderate per stability, um, because the, the serverless containers can deliver up to 5,000 request units per second uh, or moderate uh, performance. But if you look for something beyond that, serverless might not be the option. So there's also that to consider if you already know that, well, this is going to be a heavy workload and we're going to do a lot of queries in and out of the system and you know that these limits are you know, way too low, then you might not even consider um, running serverless for, for Cosmos DB. But I really like the option. And the docs mentioned that it, it is ideal to kind of consider this for development, testing, prototyping, POCs, and anything that has kind of light traffic. So anything beyond that, you might want to consider uh, one of the paid tiers. One of the, the things that one of the things that the docs also notes is that in preview now, serverless is only supported with the uh, SQL API, meaning that that the uh, the collection or the database and then the collection you create has to be exposed through the SQL API. So if right. instead you'd like to use Mongo API, then you cannot utilize the serverless model, at least for now. Perhaps we'll get that at some point, and I truly hope. Yeah, and, and there is one thing more that, or actually two things that I find incredibly important to talk about related to this. Uh, a serverless account for Cosmos DB can only run in a single Azure region. So if you're looking for this uh, kind of internet scale uh, geo-distributed, then this is not the solution. Um, it is not possible to add additional Azure regions to a serverless account after it has been created. Uh, the other thing is that the serverless containers can store a maximum of 50 gigs of data and indexes. So if you know already that you have more than 50 gigs you need to store, this is not the solution for you. If you need more distributed, uh, or, or geo-distributed scale, then this is also not the solution. So it's important, an important update, and I think this will enable a lot of my use cases for a lot of things, uh, but for the, the kind of the internet scale or planet scale uh, things that you want to build, it may not be the solution to run serverless. I feel this is definitely the, the stepping stone to actually understanding better how to utilize Cosmos DB and I often start with Azure SQL with the cheapest uh, cheapest tier in there. It's about four euro a month. 
so very affordable for testing. And now I might just switch over to serverless because I do realize that this, this gives me enough for testing and proof of concepts. And then later on, I can figure if I want to move to something else or move away from serverless to the, uh, the provision throughput model that Cosmos DB usually does. Yeah, and I, I actually found a link now on, on Microsoft Docs, how to choose between provisioned throughput and serverless. So that's also right on point and it was also published last night. Uh, so we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, so you can take a look if you want to make the decision whether or not you want to go serverless, then this document is where you start. Alrighty, so this was a lot of updates for the uh, last bit of August. Uh, I, I, I feel it allows me and us and hopefully the audience as well to better understand what's happening end-to-end -end in Azure in that sense. And some of these updates are super crucial and super useful, like the line numbers well, in Log yeah, Analytics. Yeah, like the line numbers in, yeah, in the Yeah, so that, that's what we've been waiting for. And, and obviously, plenty of these are things that, that you have to try out first, like the uh, deploying from Docker Desktop to ACI, or how the what-if works now in ARM templates. But it's nice that Microsoft documents this so well, but I also feel it's important to actually spend a bit of time on this to better internalize what was announced and what, how does this exactly affect my work? Yeah. All righty. I think that was all. So thanks again for tuning in and until next time. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.